CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by PayPal. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Hash here on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. I am Zach Seward. We got Jensen Assey. We got Wendy O. We got some news to get to about what is going on in the world of crypto. I'm starting us off today. You guys ready for this? Berenberg Investment Bank is wondering if there's another shoe to drop in the SEC's crypto crackdown. And they're speculating, it seems, that stablecoins and DeFi may be next on the SEC's hit list. We'll see if this transpires, but obviously this would be in accordance with sort of the way the SEC has approached this so far. Their regulation by enforcement approach has sort of gone down the crypto stack and could potentially reach stablecoins such as USDC and potentially even DeFi with the move to expand the definition of an exchange to encapsulate a lot of the stuff happening on chain. I don't know. I don't know if they know something that we don't, but it is interesting to think about. I'll toss it to Jen for her thoughts. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting insight, I think, if we look at the regulatory domino effect. The SEC has come after centralized exchanges. In the U.S., they've taken this regulation by enforcement approach. There are still no clear guidelines, albeit they say there are clear guidelines. The industry says the guidelines are not clear enough. And so it would make sense that the next step would be to go after these centralized elements of the DeFi ecosystem. I think in the report, it says to weaken that ecosystem. The argument for DeFi is that it's decentralized. There's no one to go after. If you're like, what are you going to do? You're going to go after code. But there are these centralized elements that are kind of the weak points of this whole ecosystem. And I think stablecoins is probably the biggest one of those centralized elements that could affect multiple ecosystems. It's like the on-ramps and off-ramps, right? So they're talking about USDC here and USDT. I think it will be interesting if the SEC does go after stablecoins to look at how they're looking at what backs stablecoins, how they're going to determine if these should be regulated as securities, what percentage of the backing need to be X, Y, and Z for the SEC to go after. I think that will be um, an interesting conversation to follow if this does come to fruition. Wendy, what do you think? So I thought that this was a very obvious story, especially considering what we've seen from the SEC in these past few weeks. And then do you guys remember the the regulatory framework that's the suggestions that Sam Bankman-Fried had proposed 
And I want to say that that was pretty detrimental to the DeFi space. So I don't know. Me personally, it makes sense that they're going to try to go after DeFi. But really what they're doing is, is they're just kind of forcing people to remain anonymous and to not really tie their names to particular projects out of fear of getting in trouble. But to me, that's kind of dangerous as well, because we like to see that founders are docs. We like to see that people building things have some sort of past track record. And now it's going to be a lot harder because we don't know what's going to happen. And as far as stable coins go, I understand why there's some issues with them um, due to the UST collapse, etc. But when we look at USDC and Tether, they're a lot more heavily regulated and transparent. And I'm not saying that they're 100% safe. I'm simply saying as they have a better track record of kind of complying and doing what was needed to be done in the United States. That's just my personal opinion. Um, Zach, you had your hand up. I think the Tether thing is interesting here, right? We've seen the SEC be really aggressive in terms of what they believe to fall within their purview. They went after Binance with some pretty significant charges. So you could imagine a world in which they do something similar to Tether, even though it is a non-US company, right? If it touches a US investor, therefore the SEC thinks that they can go after these companies and extend the US regulatory apparatus to non-US based entities. That one would be pretty crazy. I mean, again, I think this is just kind of conversational, right? Like this is something that people have been wondering and speculating about whether or not this is the next sort of uh, front of what appears to be a war on crypto here in the US. But to date, like we know of no Wells notices being issued to say Circle. We know of no regulatory enforcement action against Center, the consortium that issues the USDC's stablecoin. So I think right now this is squarely in the realm of speculation, uh, thought experiment, but it's not out of the realm of possibility, right? Which is why I think that this report is being issued and why it's worth discussing. Because you're right, Jen, I think like these asset-backed stablecoins, which are more secure, are more transparent, have been historically far more resilient than their decentralized algorithmic brethren, it is a central sort of throat to choke, right? That DeFi may be you know, at risk of having some of these known entities be involved in the space at a systemic level. So interesting to see this report come out. Again, I'm wondering what's animating the timing here, but who knows? One thing I will add is that I believe that Tether was under heavy scrutiny from the NYAG, which is very interesting because Tether is not an American company, but the NYAG was still kind of picking at them a bit. So that part, that part is very interesting to me to see how things end up playing out if they do say you can't use Tether in the United States of America. I have to point out the last piece of this article which mentions Bitcoin as kind of the big winner in all of this. We have to talk about it, right? Because Bitcoin, I think, broke 30,000 today. Wendy, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. But the last part of this article talks about MicroStrategy shares, how they're set to outperform, how you know the bullishness in the Bitcoin markets is or could be a result of all of these conversations we're having about regulation when it comes to DeFi assets, when it comes to stable coins, when it comes to everything under the crypto sun except for Bitcoin. Um, and it's just, I don't know, a good day for Bitcoin. So I thought I'd bring it up, Zach. Yeah, I think it'd be a shame. I think stablecoins are such a killer app, right? They're underappreciated in terms of moving money across the world more quickly. And without these intermediaries that are uh, seeking to take money from you when you do so. So the idea that uh, stablecoins could fall under sort of regulatory threat is a bit sad and would be a really sort of sad development for the US, which is already looking extremely bearish for the crypto sector right now. So if there can be a way for stablecoins to continue to operate in their regulated state where they don't need to fall under uh, the SEC's crackdown, uh, that'd be great because stablecoins are cool. And I think there's a lot of real world use cases that are enabled by stablecoins. 
that are actually one of the few bright spots in the crypto industry writ large in terms of meaningfully improving the existing financial system. So um, maybe that message will get out there and maybe they will be able to evade this possible crackdown. But I guess we shall see. Stranger things have happened. All right, Jen, I'm tossing it to you. What do you got? Well, before the next story, I want to say, and stable coins offer all, uh, many of the same solutions that CBDCs offer. And so maybe there's a parallel to draw there. I don't know. But let's move on to the next story. The Monetary Authority of Singapore has proposed standards for using digital money, including CBDCs and tokenized bank deposits on a distributed ledger and a technical white paper produced with the IMF, Banca d'Italia, Bank of Korea, and more. The white paper was supported by software prototypes that demonstrate the concept of something called purpose-bound money, which will enable senders to specify conditions like validity periods and types of shops when making transfers. So like a really kind of technical white paper here. We can dig into it. There are two use cases that I think I'll explain because I, I think it will help it kind of make sense for, for everyone. So one of the things they're testing with this white paper is online commerce. They have Amazon, Faz, and Grab who are uh, doing a pilot for this. And the pilot would involve escrow arrangements for online retail payments. So an example of this is like it would allow for a payment to be released to the merchant only when the customer receives the item. So they're really talking about like programmable money here. That That's what this whole white paper is about. How can we program money to make the retail experience better and maybe possibly offer some kind of, of loyalty? Wendy, I'm going to pass it off to you for your thoughts. So I understand why they want to do this from a business aspect. However, one of the big, big, big fundamental bullish things about Bitcoin and crypto assets was that you couldn't do chargebacks. Once the transaction was sent, it was sent. And one of the issues that we have in retail, especially in America, is with chargebacks, people will say, oh, I didn't get this item or, oh, I, this wasn't me that did it. So they would call the credit card company and they would have that transaction reverse. And a lot of times the merchant would end up getting kind of, you know, kind of getting screwed out of their, their money. So at the same time, I think that this is a good thing, but I also can see the issues with that too, because the whole purpose of, you know, using um, a P2P currency is so you don't have to deal with chargebacks and you don't have to deal with that issue. Also too, I wonder what the costs are to, you know, create a system like this. And of course that cost is going to be passed down to the consumers. It's never going to stay with the company. Programmable money. I think it's cool. I think it's really cool. I'm a CBDC bull. There's automated (laughs) taxes, baby. Automated taxes. (laughs) Program my money. Let's do this thing. Uh, I think it's cool. I mean, hey, this is very much within the context of these markets seeking to establish themselves as true innovators in the digital money era. So you see Korea here, you see Singapore here, Italia, Italy on the board. That's interesting. So you have these big players who are looking to be like uh, innovative and embracing of new technologies rather than being um, draconian and stifling of new technologies. So I see that as also sort of the subtext here, whether it's CBDCs or stable coins, the idea of programmable money improving the way people transact online, especially, it's fascinating. And it's great to see like big institutions grapple with this stuff. And again, again, get into the nitty gritty of uh, whether these things should be programmable, which is like a very open question. I think the EU, as mentioned in this piece, is saying that, no, if we program it, it like loses some of the benefits that cash can have, right? And that's a f- perfectly fair argument. Of course, there are other efficiencies and cool features that programmable money introduces, especially into the e-commerce realm. Um, so I don't know. Interesting to see this being thought about, again, by some pretty significant players as it relates to the banks and countries involved. Jen. Yeah, you touched on what I wanted to bring up. They mentioned in the white paper, operators will need to ensure that programmability does not come at the expense 
of digital money's ability to serve as a medium of exchange. They also go in to talk about privacy. And so I think it's noteworthy to bring up here that if it can be programmed for good, it could potentially be programmed for to do some things that maybe some people don't think are good. It comes back to this convenience thing for me too, right? I'm always like, yeah, people care about privacy. People care. But once things become super convenient for them, maybe they won't care so much. And some of the use cases that are in this white paper, I don't know. I, th- I think I could see people giving up their privacy to, to have some of that same, those same functions that they're used to with, you know, Visa and MasterCard or like centralized banks. I don't know, Wendy. I know that you probably disagree with me. So I'm going to toss it up to you. I'm actually going to direct this question at Zach. Zach, what are you going to do when the CBDC gets approved and they limit your spending? They're tracking everything you do. And you still have to hire a CPA to do your taxes and it's not even going to help with your taxes. What are you going to I say mean, then? If I, I'm going to be pissed if I still have to hire a CPA. <laughs> All the other stuff, if the taxes are automatic, sign me up. Sign <laughs> me up. But if I still have to hire someone else to do it, then I'm getting my pitchforks. Wendy, I will be on the front lines with you because be too convenience late. is king. All right. You got me. You got me good. I'm a CBDC bear now. Boo, CBDC. So, so fickle, Zach. So hey, you never know. You started just, you the segment know. as a bull. You never ended know. as a bear. <laughs> Things change. Attention crypto holders, moving crypto is seamless and secure with PayPal. With support for Bitcoin, ETH, and more, you can buy, sell, hold, send, and check out with crypto at millions of shops online. Not to mention, PayPal now supports the ability to send to and from external wallets and charges you nothing when transferring between PayPal and Venmo crypto wallets. Whether you're exploring the world of Web3 or hodling on for another day, PayPal is the convenient and simple way to convert dollars into crypto. PayPal has your back. They work to protect your financial info and give you confidence every step of your crypto journey. Now's the time to make your crypto move. Get started today at paypal.com slash crypto. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about this next story because it's a little bit unsettling here. FTX bankruptcy fees already topped $200 million, court examiner says. The bankruptcy attorney for FTX, Catherine Stradler, appointed to check fees in the case said lawyers and others racked up approximately 35,000 billable hours by the end of January. Yikes. Professional fees already amounted to over 200 million and 46 of the 242 attorneys involved in the case charge over $2,000 per hour. So that's a card for some of the fees to be slashed. She asked Sullivan and Cromwell to reduce its $42 million bill by 650,000 for deficiencies in overstaffing, excessive meetings and vague paperwork. This is kind of what happens in bankruptcy court. This is why you should never go to bankruptcy court. Attorneys are expensive. And to be honest with you, they deserve every penny that they're getting because they have to sift through a bunch of paperwork and deal with absolute incompetent nincompoops. But the thing is, is like, I feel very, very bad for the FTX creditors, like absolutely terrible for them. But we've seen this time and time again in crypto with the chapter 11 bankruptcies. And unfortunately, this is the way the law is set up. The law is set up to really enrich the pockets of attorneys um, and to protect those businesses that made terrible decisions while people that were affiliated with those businesses get absolutely reamed. Yeah. So this was really um, crazy to read how much money is being spent. But Wendy, I think you're absolutely right. This is what happens in bankruptcy court. One of the findings in, in the filing was that, yes, there are a lot of lawyers working on this case, but maybe there could have been more junior lawyers sifting, sifting through the paperwork and doing all of that grunt work. I think she, the examiner pointed um, out that there are a lot of senior legal professionals on this. And 
They even said that many practitioners have remarked not only on the breathtaking global financial scope of these cases, but also on the expansive web of financial misdeeds that preceded and likely precipitated these bankruptcies. So those misdeeds are coming back out as they try to kind of untangle everything. Um, I think it's good that this is being published. It is not anything extraordinary in a bankruptcy filing. But Wendy, I'm with you. I feel for the creditors at the end of the day, like we're just if we're just spending all of the money trying to figure out what what's going on here at retail, again, is the last to be made whole or partial at the end of the day. And that is really sad for all of these people who entrusted their funds with FTX. Zach, what do you think? I think we're missing the fact that there's an all-timer of a quote in here, transforming, quote, a smoldering heap of wreckage, end quote, <laughs> into something that is functional in the context of Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That's a good one right there. A smoldering heap of wreckage does describe FTX as we now know it, right? This is the company that had barely any records at all, it seems, right? Uh, John J. Ray III is saying, most of the correspondence was done via disappearing chat message. Expenditures were seemingly approved by emoji. All these details that have come out in the course of this public documentation suggest that it is quite the mess. So the fact that lawyers are digging through this, seemingly enriching themselves while victims of this alleged fraud don't see a dime is a bit sad, but is very much the way of the world when it comes to Chapter 11 restructuring. I think I would be curious to see if this FTX 2.0 plan ever finds its footing, if there is a way to sort of generate some revenue and get some money back in the door to make past users whole, that would be interesting. Not sure that that's ever going to come to pass, but it's something that John J. Ray III has floated uh, in past conversation. So anyway, $200 million, that's a lot of legal fees, a lot of money, a lot of money going out the door there to probably the wrong folks, but so it goes. Such is the legal process. Yeah, but it's just kind of getting started. They still have a long ways to go. I want to say, oh my gosh, I just got like this brain thing. I forgot. There was a really famous case. I can't remember what it is because I can't think clearly, but it was still going on after like 10 years. So, and you guys know what I'm talking about. I just can't think of it right now. But these cases are going to take a very long time. There's a lot of things that they need to sift through, things that have disappeared or remain um, a little bit curious. And it's also very interesting that SBF was one of the second largest donor to the a particular um, presidential candidate who is now sitting in office. And um, I think not a lot of information will be public due to that. That's just my personal opinion, though. Are you talking about I, Mount I, Gox there? Just, just uh, who? Mount Gox? Mount Gox? Are you talking about Mount Toys Gox? The, the... I'm talking about Toys R Us. No, the 10, the 10 year Mount bankruptcy, Gox. the crypto. Ten- no, the, it, was a, it was like a TradFi company. It's so stupid. Uh, okay. I know it's like on the tip Got of my it. tongue. I just can't fathom it right now. I is it linens and things? It's, yeah, it might be Kodak. Toys R Us or linens and things. Maybe Mar- Mervins. Mervins, uh, man, that's a blast from the past. California. <laughs> if you were in California in the '90s, raise your hand. Mervins, boom. Love oh that. my god! Anyway, we're just going to start you, naming Wendy. off thank companies you. that have gone through bankruptcy for the rest of the show. Good segment. Nice, nice. Good stuff. Good stuff. Mervins. Still, I'm still on the Mervins thing. Anyway. <laughs> the FTX 2.0 thing is interesting, Zach. But I want to point out, the last time we spoke about it, John J. Ray III had spent six hours, according to his invoicing, you know, deliberating or reviewing documents about FTX 2.0. And I think in the grand scheme of things, six hours is maybe not, maybe, maybe not that much, but, but maybe. Jen, last little tidbit, what do you got? We have a tweet of the day. Get ready for this. Kyle Davies made an announcement on Twitter saying 3AC is dead. Long live 3AC Ventures. 
3AC Ventures is going to be investing in projects building in the OPNX ecosystem, which we've spoken about on the show before. This was the very interesting part. Arthur Hayes quote tweeted that and said, why did 3AC die? Please enlighten us. Zach, what are your thoughts? I mean, I ain't wading into this one, but yeah. Second I acts will. in crypto do exist. And both these guys are living interesting second acts. What do you think, Wendy? 1010 10, Chad. I love Arthur Hayes. I think that he posts a lot of really great stuff. He's got, I want to say he's got like a blog I and mean, he posts a lot of alpha there. I would trust Arthur Hayes over Kyle Davies or anybody affiliated with 3AC. Anytime. I'm not saying I trust either of them very, very much, but I think it's funny. Um, Arthur's been in the space for a very, 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 very long time. And I love to see these types of disputes, especially when one party is clearly in the right. Zach. All right. I'll wrap it. Arthur Hayes is the best blogger in crypto. I will say that. All right. I'm Zach, Wendy, Jen. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for being here. It's The Hash. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive. And that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.